This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. In this part of today's show, we are going to be taking a sweeping look at the history of American childhood and parenting from the nation's founding until the present day. We're going to be talking with renowned historian Paula Fass about how since the beginning of the American Republic, independence, self-definition, and individual success have informed Americans' attitudes towards children. But as parents today hover over every detail of our kids' lives, are the qualities that once made American childhood special still desired and even possible? Placing the experiences of children and parents against the backdrop of social, political, and cultural shifts we're going to be challenged a little bit here in today's discussion to reconnect with the beliefs that set the American understanding of childhood apart from the rest of the world. For example, we're going to take a look at how freer relationships between American children and parents have transformed our national culture and altered generational relationships among immigrants, helped create a new science of child development, and even promoted a revolution in modern schooling. And we've ended up, oddly, in a place where conditions and policies in this country have made adolescence pretty much irrelevant. We'll start delving into the end of American childhood when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. notice when you have a baby everyone seems to give you advice from your mother-in-law don't you know you can't take that baby out in the rain today and where is her hat to your own parents you should take the baby outside every day even in the rain to your friends you have got to get this diaper cream it is so much better than the one you've been using when it comes to the important stuff like immunizations and protecting my baby's health I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, she gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. Honey, I totally support you getting the baby vaccinated, but really, shouldn't you put the baby's hat back on? A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. My guest for this part of today's show is Paula Foss, who's the author of The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. Paula, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk, I guess, give us a, a little bit of context here. I mean, we're talking about the American childhood, which certainly could, I guess, would have to start when America started. Or did that predate that? No, actually, since I make a big point of the importance of the revolution and the disassembling of patriarchy that was implied both by the event and with the the views that Americans had about uh, what the consequences were for family, I would say that it doesn't predate it. I mean, there are certain conditions in America that predate it. We brought the, some of the stuff with, some of the baggage, I guess, along on, on the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria and 
Oh, I don't know about that. Not that far. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly wouldn't go back Not that, that far. far. Okay. No, I actually think that m- the reason that uh, parenting in the United States was unusual in the Western world, and I've done quite a bit of work looking in, at the pa- at childhood in the West generally, is because there were particular conditions in the United States that um, made that made hierarchy within family relations less important. Deference for pa- of parent of children towards parents less expected, and put a, a greater emphasis on the responsibility of children and the maturation of children, and the expectation that children were capable of doing things on their own. Uh, part of it was a kind of forward-looking quality that I think the revolution introduced, but also the nature of the American landscape, uh, the the availability of land. Uh, the possibility of actually setting off on your own and not being held back by by earlier uh, experiences and by and, traditions. And did that start from the moment we landed here, or no, did, it did it take a while not. to no, to took, pick up some steam? It definitely did not. I mean, uh, the uh, what uh, I'm not a colonial historian, but I've read a lot in colonial history, and, and and the colonial experience was distinctly different, with a lot of emphasis on uh, fathers' roles, on fathers' control, and on fathers' power over the wives and the children, and and that is precisely what begins to be questioned. Uh, at the time of the revolution and subsequent to the revolution, especially as Americans fan out over the continent, which doesn't take place really until after the revolution as the as the boundaries uh, are, are eliminated uh, with the Western territories. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're obviously way, way, way more immersed in the history of these things. But I mean, just a little bit of reading that I've done about this, talking about the shift from father dominance in the family to mother dominance in the family. Uh, take, having to do with a variety of, of of issues that are going on, and those you're saying are more peculiar to the American experience than to the European where we came from. Definitely more specific to the American. Now, I I should also say that over over the course of the 20th century, especially post World War II, there's been much more. Um, likeness between the United States mm-hmm. and Western Europe than there had been before. But but the American experience for about 150 years was very different, uh, different uh, in terms of internal family relations, different in terms of the extensive amount of schooling that was available to, uh, to American kids, and which also introduced... Um, uh, introduced various kinds of changes within family dynamics. And the best example of that comes in the experience of immigrants and immigrant families okay. who are, in fact, bringing that older set of assumptions to the American scene. And again and again, uh, starting in the late 19th century and going through the early 21st century, where we are now, the 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 particulars of that kind of patriarchal set of expectations that were brought initially by European immigrants, Latin American immigrants, Asian immigrants, are confronted are confronted by uh, the realities in the United States where they cannot maintain that kind uh, th- those assumptions. Um, Things have begun to change today. I should say uh, that one of the things I haven't mentioned is that I think that these differences have been attenuated over the last 35 years for various reasons, among them the growing influence of fathers in in households, um, but positive kinds of fathering, not the kind of disciplinarian 
uh, authoritarian right. fathering that we're that we're thinking of, and because of the introduction of new uh, lots of new immigrants mm-hmm. too. Uh, who find this American form of lack of discipline very right. difficult. All right, so let's go back some, to some point. I pick a point like Civil War, for example. Okay, and good. and because you, you talk about Ulysses Grant and being nine years old or ten years old or something and basically running the farm, which is, I mean, you know, this is Inconceivable to uh, imagine today. this mm-hmm. being read by a parent who says, my ten-year-old, you know, can't <laughs> take a bus by himself across town and, you know, it's just it's completely inconceivable. Yeah. So you've got the grants here. What's happening in England or in Spain at that point? I mean, how how is that family different? Do you have a ten year old who's who's running the the olive vineyard in, uh, in you know Spain. in Greece or something? Uh, you know what, no. what's the short answer is no. Now, that doesn't mean that in England or in France or in Spain or in Italy these children aren't working at the age of ten, which they are. But the consequences are very different. They're not given the kind of latitude that Ulysses Grant is given to run things. They're not given the confidence and trust that Ulysses Grant is given by his father, that he can do things on his own. And they're not allowed to do the kind of roaming that Ulysses Grant can do. One of the things that that Grant is allowed to do by the time he's an early adolescent is to sell horses on his own account and to take the profits and the losses. In other words, the parents say to him, you take the risk. You learn about the riskiness. If you lose, you lose. We're not going to stand you for it. But if you win, it's yours. That is very different. So while the work may seem similar, the amount of work around the farm, the consequences and the context are so different. The kind of understanding that Grant's father has, that he gives his son the authority to make decisions on his own. That's very different. All right. So how, I mean, we're going to talk about this in much more detail in the time that you're here, but how do you get from that to, to, well, to (laughs) to the argument that people make, and it's a biologically based argument, apparently, that, you know, adolescence lasts until 25, when in, in his day, 150 years ago, there was no adolescence. So no. you just basically went from being a, a tween, to, if that sort the of term existed, never existed, yeah. but to being a tween to being an adult. Well, it wasn't quite that simple. I mean, there was a transition that took place, even for Grant. But the maturation process was much faster. And certainly no one would have argued at that point that at the age of 25, you were not an adult yet, that in a sense you, you were still emerging there was still an emergent adulthood. The bi- I want to bracket the biological issues for a moment because we only probe biology when we already come with certain assumptions. And one of the assumptions is that there is such a thing as adolescence. And as you said just now, in the 19th century, people didn't assume there was such a thing as adolescence. There was a transition that took place, a brief transition. Obvi- obviously, puberty existed. And there were also, in the 19th century, religious transformations that might take place so that you could have a religious conversion experience, say, at 12 or 13, which would mark you as responsible and as an adult in the eyes of God. Well, in my 
family, but they were certain they weren't here yet. But uh, in Poland and Russia, we're having bar mitzvahs still. Yes, so exactly. you know the, there is some kind of a thing that's that's going on. But today, a bar mitzvah certainly does not mark the moment at which someone becomes an adult it's, at all. It's the moment where you open up a checking account <laughs> I, I think. because of all the gifts that are that, that right, you expect. Right, right, right. So no, so you the the, the larger question you're asking, Armin, is. Very difficult for a historian to answer briefly because <laughs> so many things take place and happen. But let me try to be as succinct as, as possible. Okay. Especially since you asked about the Civil War. One of the things that comes out of the Civil War is a growing anxiety about children who are inadequately cared for. There's a lot of orphans that come out of the war. And freedmen and the children of freedmen are also released often into a kind of very precarious life. There's a new emphasis on orphans of all kinds. So the public becomes more conscious of the kinds of things that children are owed and the supervision that's required of children than they had been before the Civil War. Talking with Paula Foss, who's the author of The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. Again, we're taking a quick break. We'll pick up right there when we come back. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. I'm four years old, and I'm the only one in my whole class that can tie his own shoes. My mom took me to the circus for my birthday. Half my friends already went, but now I've gone too. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. But I got five bucks yesterday, I believe. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Go to casafamilyday.org, take the Family Day Pledge, and get tips on how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. Have dinner with them often, and you can significantly lower their risk of substance abuse. Dinner makes a difference. A message from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? Do you have these in a seven and a half? How's that cooked? Can I get that shipped overnight? Is there a direct flight? How long does the warranty last? What's your soup of the day? How do you change the ringtone? Does it come in blue? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life. Is it raining out? Uh, what time's the meeting? How much does this cost? Does it have four-wheel drive? Have we met before? What's my account balance? Yet somehow, when we get to the doctor's office... Any questions? Um, no. We clam up. Ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? When do I get my results? Questions lead to better health care. Go to AHRQ.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Paula Foss, who's the author of The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. And just before the break, you were talking about the Civil War and that. So please continue. Uh, just to, to repeat that briefly, uh, the Civil War makes Americans very conscious of unsupervised children and the costs of the absence of parents. So they become more aware and more interventionist in general 
in children's lives. Among the things that also emerges at the same time because of industrialization is a new awareness of and condemnation of child labor, especially in factories. So while the farm experience of Ulysses Grant is one thing, and it continues, the kind of factory labor is viewed in very different terms as exploitative. And the other thing that begins to happen by the late 19th century uh, is a a, a new emphasis on, on extended schooling and keeping children in school for longer periods of time. Those now, do you mean the school as a location or their schooling as a, an, a, just a general idea? Because a, a, a lot location. of it was happening at, in, in the home, right? Some of it was, but um, the school as a location. I mean, so many things change in the late 19th century. There's really a massive urbanization, a huge new immigration. The whole texture of the society changes. And so schools as locations in urban areas and even to some degree in farming areas, now become much more important. And in response to immigration, there's a push to keep students in school longer, uh, whereas they had been for four years previously, going on and off in very irregular ways. There's now new attendance requirements. And gradually, by the early 20th century, expansions in what's considered the end point of schooling. So that increases, well, first of all, it begins to introduce adolescence. By the early 20th century, once you have kids in school in that period of transition, then you have a, you, you, you begin to open up a new area of childhood, which is not quite like an, an eight-year-old, mm-hmm. but also not quite like an adult yet. And since they're in school, they're still preparing that right. preparatory idea. In the 20th century, those things all get massively extended. Uh, schooling especially, and if we want to really skip to the present time, the extension of schooling as necessary preparation transforms the whole concept of maturity. Uh, and that, that, I think, is one of the keys that we're looking and, at. And when does the, the concept or the science of child development start? I mean, it's not just with Piaget. It, somebody had been thinking about this before, but the idea that, that kids are not just little grown-ups. Uh, I have a whole chapter on that, I have to say, on the science of childhood. And the, the very earliest uh, introductions of those kinds of concerns is late 19th, early 20th century. They expand massively in the 1920s and 30s. The 20s and 30s uh, sees an explosion in child-rearing advice. And the really important person in the American context is, is Gazelle who at Yale begins to actually investigate the different periods of childhood development by looking at young children. And normal mothers, which uh, normal, bringing normal children now for, the, for understanding what normal childhood process is like at various stages of life. And Gazelle changed, you know, first he looks at infancy and very early childhood, and then he begins to expand that. And that sense of development is a profoundly important concept in the 20th century, and it then leads to these ideas of staged, progressive maturation. Mm -hmm. That then intersects with schooling, which is also about staged, progressive development. So do you think that that we're better off now with all of the additional knowledge and information and study that we have, or are we somehow doing kids, and particularly you talk about how adolescence has disappeared, 
pretty much. Are we doing kids in that age group a disservice by not giving them the responsibility and the consequences as uh, Mr. Grant and Mr. and Mrs. Grant gave their kids for selling horses? Um, you know, is it, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating discussion and a fascinating concept, but is there something we are we should do differently or did wrong or, you know? I think the answer is yes and no. Obviously, we protect our children better today. Our children, uh, we, we look for various laws to protect their safety. We look, we're concerned about their well-being in great detail. But we've also brought to the table a set of anxieties that I think does not do them a service. I, I include myself as a mother in that. Uh, anxieties about their, their well-being and anxieties about their success. We no longer trust that they can find their own pathway to success. So we have to lead them along this narrow path that we've followed and assume that, therefore, it will have to serve them as well. And the delay in maturity, I think, is potentially a problem. Now, that you know, you have to ask young people whether they think it's a problem. In a sense, we impose our perspective. And I, as a historian, having looked at this, see all kinds of good things having resulted. Um, resourcefulness. Children were expected to be resourceful. You're talking about in the past, historically. Right. Okay, yeah. And I look around, and I do see kind of delayed maturity. You know, there's a, a movie I saw the other day called Failure to Launch. Yeah. Um, and so we have become, uh, we have become more and more. Uh, how shall I put it? Um, coddling. Coddling. Maybe. Yes. Well, I, helicoptering. <laughs> coddling. I. Yeah. I use the word managed, obviously, in the in, in the the um, um, the subtitle of the book. Um, I think that kind of management, which, by the way, and here I'm speaking to a psychologist, in many ways emerged from psychological insights, has its negative consequences, as oh, all yeah. kinds of things do. No, I, I, I have, I'm way on board with you. I mean, it's, uh, I often will tell people, you know, when I was eight years old growing up in Oakland, my parents had me on buses going all over the place. And I wasn't trading horses, but I had a paper route, and, and so that, that involved buying the newspapers and reselling them, and if I didn't do that right, you know, and, and trying to be sweet around Christmas time so people would give tips. I mean, you, you learn, you know, had to learn a few kinds of things that, that, that kids didn't. But if I were to put my 8-year-old, or my, she's 13 now, but uh, put that child on a bus at, at age 8, I would probably have uh, had her delivered back home by a police officer. Exactly. I was going to say you would probably be arrested, as some people are arrested these right, days. Right, which is horrifying. It is I, I think. I mean, you know, yes, of course, we don't want our children to be kidnapped and we don't want our children to be in danger, which is why playgrounds are all rubber these days and you can't but, fall and down and hurt yourself. Them. Yeah. <clears throat> well, kids have to be taught how to play. Uh, I mean, it, anyway, but so we, we, we agree with this, but it's it's uh, it's an interesting thing to, to see historically where we came from. And, and in a way, you want to say how far we've come, but it's like how how far we didn't come. Or how far backwards we went, or I mean, it's it seems like the the progression from in time, from the eighteen hundreds to the two thousands has not been a forward march all the way. Well, any his, any good historian would tell you that there is no such thing historically as necessarily a forward march. Just because we move over time, right, doesn't mean we get better. 
Uh, but one would hope, and this is one of the reasons that I wrote the book, that we could reconnect parents today would be able to reconnect with some of this tradition that has made America into a quite successful society and the kind of forward-looking qualities that have allowed to us to endow our children with that kind of trust. I have to say, one of the reasons that we American parents were able to do that is that we had a lot of faith in the future, and I think we're losing that. I think over the last couple of generations, there has been a decline in faith in the future. And if you lose that faith in the future, you are fearful that your children's lives will not be better. And if they won't be better, you want to at least make sure that they have as much as you do, which is where I think parents are today. Certainly middle class parents, but no, not only middle class parents. I think a lot of parents yeah. are coddling because they're fearful for their children's future. Well, that's what people are saying now, is that this is really the first generation of kids who are generally out there now who don't have an automatic leg up on their parents financially or in, in any other way. And so, you're, yeah, you're right. So we, we, if, if you can't make it better, we can at least make it more pleasant while you're here. Paula Foss, the author of The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. Just fascinating stuff. Paula, thanks for coming by. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Dear Mom and Dad, one thing I've learned in the Army is that when you're lucky enough to get a little time off, you should put it to good use. So I'm taking a moment to write and tell you that I'm fine and doing well. We have good days and bad days over here. We try to remember the good ones and get through the bad ones as best we can. Mostly we have each other, and that's what keeps us going. That and the pride of our commitment to getting the job done, whatever it takes. I miss you all very much and can't wait to get back to life as usual. Please tell everybody hello for me, and that I'll be home soon. And Mom, since you asked, if anyone wants to help, just tell them to contact the USO. You can't believe how much they do for us. With love, your son Michael. The USO depends on the generosity of the American people, people just like you. To find out how you can help, visit us at uso.org. The USO, until everyone comes home. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Let me jump right into today's Ask Mr. Dad. Dear Mr. Dad, my girlfriend and I talked many times about children and mutually decided not to have any. However, without telling me she changed her mind and got pregnant, I have absolutely no interest in being a father or raising children, but she's threatening to come after me for child support. Is there anything I can do to stop her? Well, the short answer to your question is no, there's nothing you can do to stop her. Society's reaction to any man who gets a woman pregnant, even if he was lied to about her intentions, is basically, tough luck, buddy. If you didn't want kids, you should have used a condom or had a vasectomy. The legal system's reaction is pretty much the same. If you and your girlfriend break up, and I can't imagine how you could possibly stay together after such a major breach of trust, and she chooses to keep the baby, you're on the hook for 18 years of child support for a child you never wanted. Plus, as an added bonus, you'll be forced to have an ongoing relationship with a woman you'd probably just as soon never see again. Bottom line, she can do whatever she wants, and you have absolutely no say in it at all. Let's be clear. I am in no way suggesting that you should have the right to force your girlfriend to have an abortion. That would be barbaric. 
nor am I suggesting that you should have the right to force her to have the child if the situation were reversed and you wanted the baby, but she didn't. I'm just pointing out that in all the politically charged debates between the pro-choice and pro-life camps, we've forgotten, or worse, maybe we never even realized, that men, too, are deeply affected by the reproductive choices women make. The phrase, a woman's right to choose, usually means her right to have an abortion. But having the rights not to become a parent includes the right to become one if she chooses. Neither of these seemingly fundamental rights, however, apparently applies to men. The same laws that protect your girlfriend's parental choices also allow her to either force you to become a father against your will or deprive you of your right to become one if you so choose. So what can you do? Well, one possible answer comes from Sweden. A group called the Liberal Youth of Sweden recently proposed legislation that would give men the right to what you might call a legal abortion. Under the proposed law, a man would have until the 18th week of the pregnancy to give up any right to visit his child, and he would be legally exempt from paying any child support. In situations like yours, this approach seems quite fair to me, but it's meeting with a lot of resistance in that otherwise very progressive country. Because pregnancy, childbirth, and abortion physically affect women more than men, ultimately, women should have 51% of the votes. But you should have the opportunity to participate in the decision-making process, to express how having or not having a child will affect you, and to try to convince your girlfriend that you're right while also giving her a chance to convince you that she's right. I doubt that either of you will change the other's mind, but perhaps you can convince her to try the Swedish approach. If she's open to the idea, you'll need to see a good lawyer to determine whether such an agreement would be legally binding in your state. You can get a lot more Ask Mr. Dad columns at AskMrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you, either Ask Mr. Dad or Parents at Play. Until then, I'm Armin Broad. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.